Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's work. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Everybody doing all right? Yeah, I am definitely wearing a Falcons jersey. And I know that they're not playing tonight. So I'm mourning with all of my friends who are Falcons fans to realize, like, we should be there. We should. If Julio would have caught the pass or the offensive coordinator wouldn't have, you know, froze up or something, I mean, we should be there. But, hey, you know, it's awesome that there's a football game now around the Justin Timberlake concert, according to Corey. So that's exciting. But, uh, no, hey, welcome today. Pastor Trevor said it earlier, but we're so thankful that you braved the weather. Uh, I had to take the ark here this morning. It rained pretty hard at my house last night and this morning. But we're so thankful that you're here today because we're kicking off this brand new series called How to Win at Relationships. You know, back in December, our staff and, and spouses here at Canton Church, we decided to do something fun to kind of celebrate Christmas and reflect on 2017. Uh, over the years, we've done different things. We've, uh, we've got, come to our house, just grab dinner, or we've gone out for something, just, you know, got a little light dinner or something like that. But this year, we decided to do something different. We decided, you know what, it's been a big year. Let's all get dressed up. Let's go out. Let's get a nice dinner and let's do something fun that we've never done before. I think with the exception of one or two people on our team, we had never done this. And we went and did one of those escape rooms. Anybody ever, you know what, you've ever done this. You know what I'm talking about when I say that. So some of you don't. So what an escape room is, it's kind of like a big giant game of Clue, really. You go into this business that might have multiple different rooms and you're going to go into one of those rooms and be locked in. The fire marshal won't let you actually be locked in, so you're kind of just agreeing to be in there and not open the door. But you have an hour, you have 60 minutes for your team in that room to take all the clues that are in that room that you find and piece them together and figure it out and come up with the strategy to escape from the room. And so we're pretty competitive among our staff members. And so when we showed up, we asked the people that own the place, we said, hey, uh, what's the fastest time to get out of the room ever? What's the, like in the history of this place, how fast has somebody gotten out of the room? So they, they told us, they thought they knew. So we're like, okay, well, we're getting out. Even if we have to break the door down, we're getting out in a faster time than that. And so what they did is they said, hey, you come into this room and our room had like this different theme and this different storyline and narrative. And then there were clues in the room that we had to use to escape from that room and they give you 60 minutes. And so I'm proud to tell you, I'm, I'm actually pretty proud of this, Canton Church, you should be proud as well. Your staff did not use any of the five hints that were available to us, and we escaped from the room in 47 minutes. We've got this picture. Um, Corey's holding a gun. That's scary. Um, I have a deck of cards just because I got bored in the middle, and Trevor actually brought that skeleton with him. That had nothing to do with the game. But um, this was us. We were all dressed up to go out on, on the town that night. But we had 12 minutes and 42 seconds left out of our 60 minutes, and we got out of this bomb shelter, which was the, the theme of that room. But something interesting happened. 47 minutes before we got out, we were all standing in the room, and there was a young lady who was in the room with us. She was not a part of our team. She was actually helping to oversee our game. And before we could begin, she came into the room to give us some guiding principles around this game to help us find success in our 60 minutes. And so she gave us several rules. One of the things was she said, listen, don't move the furniture. She said, it's not going to help you. You can look on top. You can look underneath. You can look behind it. But if the furniture's in a certain spot, it's because it's supposed to be in that spot. We promise you, you don't have to move the furniture because the first thing I was going to do was move the furniture. Like I'm thinking there's hidden stuff. She's like, don't move the furniture. I promise it's not going to help you. The other thing that she said was, she said, everything that you need to escape from this room is in the room. 
So she said, don't get your phones out. Don't go searching for stuff. Don't go look for pictures online. Like everything you need is in the room. There are clues in the room that will help you do this. She was giving us the guiding principles to know how to win this escape room. Now, today, as we kick off this new series, I don't know if you've ever thought about winning at relationships. Maybe you have, and maybe that's part of the problem in your relationships. Because if you win, that means somebody else is going to lose. But what we want to talk about over the next four weeks is really about finding success in your relationships. When we say win, we want everybody in that relationship to win. We want each member of that dating relationship or that marriage or the coworkers that you're in relationship with or your employers or employees or, or maybe it's a family dynamic of parents or kids or your next door neighbors. We want everybody in the context of those specific relationships to win. So it's not a win and somebody else loses. It's we want everybody to win. And so what we want to do is we want to help you to understand some principles that we believe over the next four weeks will help you to find success in these relationships. And let me just say right up front, this is going to feel a little more self-help than we normally do around here, but everything that we're taking for these four weeks comes right out of God's Word. We believe that God's Word speaks to us about the things that are happening in our lives and that God designed us to live in relationship with one another, and He didn't do that and then just leave us on our own. He said, no, here's some things that you can pull into those relationships that will actually allow you to find success and to find fulfillment in your relationships. But I, by far... When I meet with couples or when I meet with people that are having some type of relational strife in their life, the number one thing that they talk about that is the struggle is communication. Communication. A couple weeks ago, I was reading out of Forbes magazine, uh, something I was researching for another project. I was reading in Forbes magazine a study that was done several years ago. And this study was really to take all the numbers that came out of a survey that they did in the workplace. And they went into Fortune 500 companies. They went into small businesses with maybe just three to five employees. And they asked over 25,000 employees in these different contexts, what is the number one thing you need from your boss? What's the number one thing that you desire for your employer to provide for you? And there were several things that were outlined in this article that I was reading there in Forbes. You know, they, want, they said, hey, we want good compensation. We want to be compensated for our work. We'd like some, you know, to have benefits so that we know that you know, our family has insurance or there's some other things that were retirement or whatever. We want to have benefits. There were, you know, hey, we want, to, we want to have a good work culture. We want to have fun on the job or whatever. But by far, all of the other answers constituted about 27 or 28% of the responses of over 25,000 employees Almost all of the other responses could be categorized into this one answer from my employer, I just want them to communicate with me. I just want them to communicate with me. And I think all of us in the room, if we're honest, we think about the people that we work for, our boss, our employer. We want to know what we're expected to do. We need them to outline for us, what are you expecting me to do? What does success look like in the job that you've asked me to do? And then if we do a good job, we want them to affirm us. Hey, you were supposed to make the widget. You made the widget. Great job. We want them to affirm what we did. Or if we don't do a good job, we want them to correct us. Hey, the next time that you do this, project. We'd like for you to do this. Change how you're operating. Change this. Save more money by looking at a different vendor. Whatever. Because we want them to communicate with us. But again, this is not just an employee-employer relationship. Because I think if you went and you asked all of those bosses, you asked every one of those employers, are you communicating with your team? What do you think they would say? Yes. 
Obviously, I'm communicating with them. We have the weekly staff meeting. We have the daily stand-up meeting that Patrick Lencioni talks about. We go to quarterly off-sites. We have a yearly planning thing. We talk all the time. That's all we do. I don't feel like they're getting enough work done because all we do is stand around and talk. We communicate all the time. Obviously, we're communicating. But evidently, how the employer is communicating is not how the employee wants to be communicated with. And so when I think about relationships outside of the working relationships, and I think about marriages and dating relationships, people we've walked journeys with that are really trying to make things happen, make things work, find more success, find more fulfillment. When I think about family dynamics where there's strife between sons and moms and dads and daughters and extended relationships within families, or I think about neighbors or uh, coworkers or whatever it is, communication seems to be a common theme. And it's, it's obvious why communication is such a struggle Because we are told that in any conversation between two people, there are actually six people present. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but if I were to stand here and talk to any individual person, there's actually six people in that conversation between the two of us. And I've asked them to put this up because this is a little bit like who's on first. So we're going to have to struggle to stay together. The first person that's in the conversation between the two of us is who I am, who I am. I'm standing here talking to you, and I'm talking to you out of the context, through the filter of who I actually, at my core, who I am. That's obvious. You would think, hey, everybody's just talking out of the the perspective of who they are. The second person that's present, though, is who you think I am. Who you think I am is a little different than who I am. And I probably haven't let you know everything about me, so that shapes a little bit of the conversation that we can have. So now there's now two people in this conversation. There's who I am and who you think I am, but there's also a third person, and that's who I think you think I am. And you're like, whoa, 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 you lost me, right? But it's not just who I am, and it's not just who you think I am. It's also my perception of what you perceive about me. So now I'm filtering it as I present information to you, who I am, who you think I am, and who I think that you think that I am, right? And I had to practice this because I was like, I'm going to get this wrong, right? So that's the first three. But guess what? That's only halfway there. The fourth person in any conversation between two people is who you are, right? I got who I am. I've got who you think I am. I've got who I think you think I am. And now we've got who you are, who you naturally are, down to your core. That's the fourth person that's present when just two of us are standing there talking. And now the fifth person shows up, and this is who I think you are, right? I've got a perception about who you are, and so that shapes everything that I hear you saying and how you're presenting information to me. The fifth person is who I think you are, and then the sixth is obvious. It's who you think I think you are, right? If you just split this list in half, the top half is me, the bottom half is you, and we're both messed up, right? Because when we're having a two-person conversation, there's actually six people present. Who I am, who you are, who you think I am, who I think you are, who you think I think you are, and who you, I think you think I am. I don't know. Anyway, you got what I'm saying, right? There's six people present, and this is just when we're talking between the two of us. In a room like this, all of you are misunderstanding me, and I'm so sorry, (laughs) right? No, there's six of us, and here's where it gets even more complicated. There's not just six people talking when two of us are talking. We also recognize, according to studies for the last hundred years or so, that only 7% of communication between you and I are the words that I say. 7%. Which means that 93% of the things that we're communicating about is nonverbal communication. In any conversation that I'm having with you, we're now filtering it through six different filters of six different perceptions and six different realities and personalities and who we are. And only 7% of it has anything to do with the words that are coming out of my mouth. It's one of the greatest lines in all the movies. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? 
And the reality is, no, you don't, because 93% of what we're talking about is not about the words that are coming out of my mouth. 55% of that 93% that is not about the words, 55% of that is about body language. If I'm communicating with you, my arms are crossed. If I'm your boss and I walk in and I do this, you know, oh, I'm about to get in trouble. He's got bad news, right? If my face is, right, I'm about to yell at somebody, right? Because it's body language. You are now interpreting. If I went, I love you, you're like, what? Because I was reading no love, and yet your words said love, and I don't really know how that comes together. Of the 93%, 55% is body language, 38% is tone. Are you sarcastic? Are you laughing when you say something? Like, you are an idiot. So am I really an idiot or was that a joke? Like, are you blown away with how big an idiot I am or you just think it's funny that anybody would think that because I'm actually not an idiot because I don't, 38% now is throwing me off and your body language, I don't really know why you would laugh but have your arms, idiot doesn't make sense because the other 93% is throwing me off. 7% is about the words, 55% is about the body language, 38% is about the tone. And we'd have to take all that and filter it through the six people just so you can hear what I'm trying to say. No wonder communication is so hard. So what we wanted to do beginning today is we want to give you five principles about communication right out of God's word that I believe will help you in every relationship that you and I are a part of in our lives. The first one is this. You need to listen. You need to listen. If you want to write these down or put these in a phone or something, I welcome you to do that. You need to listen. Look at this in James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to listen or quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Know this, let every person be quick to hear. One of the best ways to avoid anger and to avoid misunderstanding is to be a better listener. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You want to slow down how quick it is that you just fly off the handle? You need to listen better. So often when people argue, they get defensive because they don't feel like they're being heard, and so they just repeat what they had previously said in a louder tone more aggressively because they think that will get the person's attention so that they actually feel heard. You need to listen better. You know, there, there's a lot of ways that you can listen. I am guilty of what I call man listening. I did not make that term up. I was taught that by the women in my life. And there are times when I am listening and I actually listen to what you're saying, but I don't actually hear what you're saying. You know, there's times Corey will say something and I'll realize she stopped talking and she's waiting on a response from me. And I'll be like, what was that? What, what, what was the last thing you just, I mean, I got all the things up to the last thing. What was the last thing you just, oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, here's what I think. And then I start talking again, but I've not actually been listening. There's a difference in listening and hearing. There's a difference in listening and hearing. I, I can listen to the words that you're saying, but not actually hear what you're trying to communicate to me. Proverbs 18 and 2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool, which nobody wants to be called, takes no pleasure in understanding, which means the inverse would be true, that a wise person values understanding. A fool only expresses their opinions, but a wise person is interested in the opinions of other people. So a couple of questions for you today to evaluate how good of a listener you are. Three questions. How good a listener are you really, right? Here's the three questions that you can use. Don't ask your spouse to grade this, this quiz. This is a self-guided, self-scoring quiz. Are you listening just so that you can think of what to say next. 
I know nobody in the room has ever done that. But where someone else is talking and you're listening, but you're not really listening, you're just allowing them space to talk as you formulate your next thought. So you're just really listening to give space so that you're preparing your rebuttal. Are you listening just so that you can think about what you're going to say next? The second thing is, are you listening only so that you can repeat the words back? This is what I was talking about just a minute ago. I mean, I'm listening because I can say what you just said, right? What did I just say? I say that to my kids all the time because they're like doing something and I'm like, what did I just say? They're like, uh, well, maybe they can go, you told me to clean my room, but they weren't actually listening. They, They weren't hearing what I was saying. So how good of a listener are you? Are you listening so you can formulate what you're going to say? Are you listening and you could repeat the words back? But third question, are you able to feel what the other person is feeling? Are you able to feel what the other person is feeling? What what feelings do they possess that is actually causing them to say what they are saying? Look at their body language. Listen to their tone. Don't just listen to their words. That's only 7% of what they're trying to communicate. So can you feel what they're feeling as they try to communicate with you. And I wrote this down. Until you can feel it, you haven't really heard it. Until you can feel it, until you can find that place of motivation, why do they feel the way that they feel? You haven't really heard them until you can feel it. The second guiding principle to win in your relationships related to communication is that how you respond determines how things go. How you respond determines how things go. Proverbs 15 and 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When you listen, you have a choice to make before you respond. As you're listening to the other person, whether you're listening to formulate your response, whether you're listening and you could just repeat the words back, or whether you're trying to feel it, you have a choice into how you are responding. So often, when people are arguing or people are listening and they're, they're trying to understand, they get defensive Based off something that they heard, they think somebody's on the offensive, they're attacking them, they're coming at them. And so automatically, without even thinking, they respond in a very defensive tone. Oh yeah, well you do this. Oh yeah, well that's not what I do. What if we just took a breath, took a pause, and had a soft answer? I'm not a big tennis guy. I've played a little bit, but I'm not a big tennis guy. But I understand that like, if you were playing competitive tennis... The idea is that if every chance that you get, you want to just smash the ball away from the opponent so that you score the point. If they're over here, you try to hit it to the left. You might try to drop a shot. You're trying to get the point. You want to win the point. But in relational communication, the idea is that I would just maintain the volley. Just hit it back to you so that you can hit it back to me, so that I can hit it back to you, so that you can hit it back to me. We're just continuing this ongoing give and take in communication. If my idea, if my objective in communicating in that way is to make sure that any chance, I mean, you just leave me a little bit of an opening, I'm like, wham, and I slam it right down your throat. I've won the point, but I've probably lost the relationship. I want to maintain the volley. I want to keep the back and forth going between the two of us so that we have the ability to continue having this conversation. A soft answer turns away wrath. Look at this in Matthew chapter 5. This is not going to be on the screen. Matthew 5 verse 9. This is Jesus speaking here in his first sermon. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I used to think that 
Peacemaking, as I'm listening to all the things that Jesus outlines in his first sermon, peacemaking was this very passive, wimpy thing that I was supposed to do. Like anytime there was conflict, I was just supposed to back down. I was, oh, I got to keep the peace. I got to keep the peace. I got to keep the peace. But if you think about what this is actually saying, it's actually saying you step into a situation where peace does not exist and you create it. You create something that does not exist in that moment. So again, I hope that your home is not like this. I hope your marriage or your relationship with your children or your relationship with your parents or that Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, I hope it's not like this. But imagine that you step into the middle of two warring nations. The peacemaker is the one who steps in and tries to create a treaty between the two parties that says, nah, we're not just going to coexist here. We're not just going to keep quiet over this meal or in our home. We're actually going to work to all the way to this place where we can collaborate together to have a fulfilling, successful dynamic in this relationship. It's, 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 it's not a passive, wimpy thing. It's saying, no, no, I'm a peacemaker. I'm strong to stand in the midst of what's happening between these parties and to go, hey, we're going to create something new here. We're going to make peace where there was not peace. The idea of creating causes me to think about God the Father early in the book of Genesis, stepping into the chaos of Genesis chapter 1 and creating something that was not there. He created order. We bring order to chaos. And what I love about it, and I'd never seen this until this week as I was preparing this, it says that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, we understand that children possess the DNA of their parents. That they, they carry with them the the identity piece, that which was passed on to them by their parents. So as children of God, assuming that you are a follower of Christ in the room today, and I realize not everybody is, but if you are a child of God, then the, the best thing that you could do to reflect the nature of your father is to make peace where it doesn't currently exist. And if you say, well, yeah, you just you don't know my relationships you're right, I don't. And yet I know your father. And if you call yourself a Christian, then it's your responsibility and mine to step into circumstances where there is chaos and war and strife and fighting and not to keep it going, but to find a way to resolve it. Blessed are the peacemakers, the peace creators because they are the direct reflection of God the Father. That's what we're called to do and called to be. The third guiding principle to win in relationships is you got to practice the golden rule. I tried to come up with something really cute right there, but the golden rule is cute enough by itself, so we just left it. Practice the golden rule. We, we teach this even outside of church. We teach this to young children when they start school, when they start preschool, because we want to help them understand how they're supposed to interact with other children. Maybe they're an only child, or maybe they're the youngest or the oldest, and maybe they, they, they're the middle, and so they've tried, they've, they've not shared well, or whatever the dynamics are. We go, hey, in this, in this world, you're going to have to learn how to coexist with other people, and so you want to do unto others what you would want them to do unto you. Now, as a parent trying to teach my children this, they are convinced that it says or should say, do unto others what they did unto you. I got an eight-year-old that believes that's the correct translation of the scripture. Do unto others what they did unto you. Dad, he hit me. I'm hitting him back. 
He was mean to me. I'm going to be mean to him. I'm doing unto others what they did unto me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. You are not reacting and responding to what's been done to you. You are initiating new behavior that you hope to receive from the other party. No matter how they're treating you, no matter what they're doing to you, you are initiating response. Matthew 7 and 12. So in everything, everybody say everything. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Anytime that you see that phrase in the New Testament, this sums up the law and the prophets, you actually see the writer here, or in this case Jesus speaking, saying this is the sum of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets made up the Old Testament. The law were those first few books of the Old Testament that outlined the way that God had given instructions to his people. The law, the way that I want you to live among the people that don't reflect my character and nature, here's how you should conduct yourself, that's the law. The prophets were the rest of the Old Testament that God was choosing to speak through a different group of people so that they would know how they are supposed to live. There's a revelation, an ongoing revelation from God so that they would know what God wanted them to do in these new circumstances in life, the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is saying here, in everything, in everything that you do from this point forward, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament could be summed up in this idea that you do to others what you would have them do to you. You, you move first. You initiate. You're not reacting. You're being proactive, not reactive. And you are initiating. And, and where do we get the example of this? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, I want you to go do this. Just go figure it out yourself. Love one another. He keeps going and he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He gives us the example. He initiated. He moved first. Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to earn it. We weren't good enough. There was nothing we could do to be good enough. He loved us before we could do any. So I have loved you first. I did unto you what I want you to do to others. He says, so what I've given to you, this example of love, now you do that to other people. You love one another just as I have loved you, just as I loved first. Now you love those in your life. And so related to this idea of the, the golden rule, not reacting, but if you are initiating towards your spouse, your sons and daughters, your moms and dads, your coworkers, neighbors, friends, whatever it is, based on your words, how do they think you feel about them? Based on your words, only your words. It's only the 7%, but based on your words, how do you think they feel about you? Not because I responded to what they started and they said this and then I responded and I said, no, no, if you are initiating based on just the words that you use, how do you think that they feel or how do they think that you feel about them? If you take the words off the table, actions speak louder than words, perhaps. What do your actions say about how you feel? You respond. That's not what you're supposed to do. You initiate. So instead of saying, well, this is what we always do. They come in and they're in a bad mood when they come home from work. And so I was like, okay, well, fine. You forgot to do this and you forgot to do this and you didn't do this and I didn't think you did this and I don't. How was your day? Before we get to the to-do list, before we get to the things you forgot, how was your day? You've been out of town for a few days, you get back, hey, how was your trip? 
hey, here's some things we did while you were gone. Here's some things I did while you were gone. I wanted you to know about them. I don't want to create just a different life and a different narrative than you're creating, and eventually we just get so far apart we can't reconcile it. So I want to bring you back to my life and show you what I've been doing while we've been apart. Based on your words, based on your actions, how do they think that you feel about them? The fourth guiding principle. you got to tell the truth even when it's hard. You've got to tell the truth even when it's hard. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Put away falsehood and let us speak the truth. Write this down. Truth builds trust. Truth builds trust. When I was younger, I was a child, something happened in my life through no fault of anybody else. It was the way that I was interpreting the circumstances of my life. I was the oldest child in my family. I am the oldest child in my family. And maybe if you're an oldest child, maybe you'll recognize some of the things I'm about to describe. If you're not the oldest, you're the youngest, you go, oh, I've heard my older siblings say that all their life. I think it's a bunch of hogwash. But let me just describe what happened in my life, whether you receive it or not. I was the oldest. And so I was born, right? And they celebrated that. I don't really remember it, but there were pictures and videos. So I remember, okay. We celebrated that. And then Jeremy learned to walk, and we celebrated that. And then Jeremy was potty trained. He stopped pooping on himself, and it's like, we celebrated that. And then Jeremy learned how to ride a bike and tie his shoes, and we celebrated those things. And he went to school, and we celebrated that. And through no fault of my parents, they never said it's about perfection. But every time I did something good, we celebrated that. We, like, threw a party about it. And so I began to think that if I want them to affirm me, I have to be good. I have to do good. I have to please them. And, and again, this is not about my parents. This is about me. Not just in the relationship with my parents, but with teachers and with friends and coaches. I wanted to always do what I thought they wanted me to do. I was thinking through that filter of who they thought I was. Even when I made mistakes, I would try to cover them up. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to lie. I'm not trying to excuse it. All of it was my fault. I wasn't trying to lie. Usually I was just hiding the truth, which is a form of lying. I totally admit that. But I was just saying, like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hiding. I don't want them to realize that I can't keep all the plates spinning in the air, and there's like 12 plates laying over there that are broken, but I don't want them to know. So I kind of hide that I'm not keeping all of them up, and I don't want them to see the mess over here that I've made. And so I would just kind of hide from that because I just I wanted them to trust me and believe in me, and believe that I was this, I want, again, it wasn't about them throwing parties for me. I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to disappoint them. And again, they never said, you got to do this, or we're so disappointed, you made a B, or you made a C, or you didn't make the team. But my perception was, man, I got to keep, I got to keep up appearances. I got to keep, and so out of my childhood, into my teenage years, and even into college, and I wanted to make them think I never dropped the ball. But if truth builds trust, what I did not understand is that nobody was really fooled. And even if they were fooled for a season, they weren't fooled long term because nobody's perfect and nobody can keep all the plates spinning. And eventually they would see that I dropped one. I let them down. I forgot to do this. I didn't make as good a grade. I lost the money. I did the thing. And so it's like eventually they go, oh, you're, you're like me. You're imperfect. And so you've made a mistake and let's fix it and let's clean it up. And so there were some relationships in my life where I did not build trust because I was not truthful or I lost trust because of a lack of truthfulness. And let me just say to you, if that's anything you've ever struggled with in your whole entire life, even for a moment, 
It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Because while you think you've got everybody fooled, I promise you, you don't. And the pain of the conversation that you need to have to come clean and just to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm not what you think I am. I dropped the ball. The pain of that conversation and how much you're agonizing over it is far less than the pain that you and others will feel down the road when they discover it on their own. It's going to cost you more than you thought. It's going to be way worse than you can imagine. So don't text them. In our culture, man, we text the hard things. We're like, if I don't have to be in the room, they'll read this and they'll have time to think it and process it before we get back to no, no, Don't text it. Don't email it. Don't even pick up the phone and call unless you absolutely cannot be in their presence in the near future. Walk into the room, look them into the eye and say, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. It's my fault. For this reason or that reason. Or what, it's my, don't, don't put the blame on them. Own it yourself. It was my fault. I'm sorry. Here's what I did. Here's why I did it. And I'm not going to do it again. Truth builds trust. And here's the reality. Like if you say, well, yeah, but only part of it's my fault. If only 2% is your fault and 98% is their fault, you still have to own 100% of your 2%. Right? And, and here's the reality. When I meet with people, meet with couples, meet with people that are in relational strife, it's never just 2% your fault. I'm just going to be honest. I haven't met you in your circumstance probably. It's never just 2%. You're at least 10 or 20 or 30 or 40%. A mentor of mine several years ago, we had had a conversation. We walked away from that conversation, and I thought this is what he meant. He thought this is what he meant and that I understood that. And he walked away, and I walked away. And a couple weeks later, we came back together to realize that there had been a misunderstanding. And he said something to me. He was much older, much wiser. He said something to me that day I've never forgotten. I actually use it in my own life now. He said, in a conversation where there is a misunderstanding between me and someone else, I'm at least 50% responsible. It's not just 2%, 5%, 10%. i am at least 50%. I should have said it clearer. I should have asked clarifying questions. I should have had you repeat it back to me at the end to make sure you understood. I should have followed up right after the meeting to make sure you knew or what. I'm at least 50% responsible, but you have to own whatever parts of it are your fault. You can't just pass the blame to somebody else. It's so much easier to pass the blame, but you've got to go, hey, listen, at least a portion of this is my fault, and I'm sorry. And here's what, tell the truth. Say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, please forgive me. It's easier now. I know it doesn't seem like it. It's easier now than it ever will be in the future. Fifth guiding principle you got to do some heart surgery. you got to do some heart surgery. Look at this in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And maybe you look at that in verse 19 and you go, man, not all that has to do with communication or even relationships. And you would probably be right. But the truth of this passage of Scripture is that whatever is in your heart is eventually going to come out of your mouth. You can hide it for a while. You can be convinced that nobody's ever going to know what's going on. But I promise it's going to come out. you got to do some heart surgery. I'm not talking literally. Please don't try to perform. That would be dangerous, right? I'm speaking figuratively and spiritually. God, carve away the parts of my heart that don't reflect you. Things on this list in verse 19 and other things that aren't even in this passage that I know are not reflective of your character and nature. So God, carve those pieces out of my heart. 
Because I want the words that I say to those that I'm in relationship with to reflect you. And in order for those words over the course of my entire life to reflect you from this point forward, I gotta make sure my heart reflects you. I gotta make sure my heart is right. And so God cut away every part of my heart that is not like you. And here's the reality for some of you in the room, most of us in the room, you're probably gonna end up with a heart about that size. Because after everything else has been cut away, I'm not talking about my whole hand, I'm talking about that little dot right inside of it. That's all that's gonna be left. But you would rather have a heart that small that God can build on and continue to form and make you into who he's called you to be than to have a heart this big. And most of it is ugly, nasty. It doesn't reflect God. It makes its way into your relationships. It's why so many of us struggle because we keep trying to change the way we talk and we never deal with our heart. We keep saying to our spouse, yeah, you're right. I, I gotta be kind, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. And we never address our heart issues. What's the hurt back there in your past that's causing you to lash out? Because hurt people hurt people. Where's that hurt coming from? Deal with it. Ask God to heal it and carve it away. What's, where's the unforgiveness that you're holding on to? Something they said or did to you weeks ago, months ago, years ago, and you allow that to shape the conversation with that coworker or that boss or that next door neighbor. And it's like, they didn't even mean it. They probably don't even remember that they hurt you. But man, it's still a part of this huge heart you've got. And you go, God, would you just help take this away? I may have to forgive them without them ever knowing. But God, would you just take this piece away? Because I, even if I'm left with something really, really small, I want it all to reflect you. You gotta do some heart surgery. And so as we close our time today, some of you, you're like, okay, you got these five guiding principles all right, I want, to, I want to do those things. I want them to be reflected in my relationships. I want to win at relationships. I want to find success, not so that I can win and somebody else loses, but so we can all win. I want to be a better husband, a better son, a better daughter, a better parent, a better friend, coworker, employee, employer. I want to be a better, whatever. I want to win in those relationships so everybody in my life wins. But I know today that the very first thing I've got to do is I, I've actually got to give my heart to Jesus Christ. Like I, I've, it's like heart surgery. It's like heart replacement. I got to take out old me and, and allow him to put a new heart inside of me. Last week, we baptized eight people between our two services. And when they went under the water, what they were saying is the old me is dead in a life of sin, and the new me is coming to life in Jesus Christ. And today, if you say, hey, I, I need to do I'm going to be baptized next time you do it, but I'm going to be baptized based on the decision that I make today. So Jesus, forgive my sins and become the Lord of my life. In a second, we're going to give you the chance to do that. For others of you, you're like, no, no, no. What I need to do is I just need to make sure that all these guiding principles you're talking about, there's one or two specifically that spoke to me. i got to change the way I respond. i got to be a better listener. Like, i got to start telling the truth. I'm hiding the truth from the people in my life because I'm afraid of what they're going to think. But i got to, I got to start telling the truth. i got to do a heart surgery on me. i got to get rid of some evil and, and sin and some stuff that's in there that's just, it's just nasty. and it's, It doesn't reflect God. i got to get those things out of me. So that's what I want to do today. Here, I want you just to bow your head, close your eyes just for a moment. Nobody's looking around, just for you just to kind of take a second here and ask the Lord to help you search your heart, search your life. And if you would say to me today, Jeremy, with nobody looking around, I want to acknowledge that I need Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you so much. You can put it right back down. Anybody else? Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's, I just want to be better in my relationships with communication. I, I need to start telling the truth more. I need to be a better listener. I need to watch my response. I, I really need to make sure that 
everything that I'm saying and doing, like it reflects God in, in my relationships. I want to I speak better and listen better because I want to win in relationships. Would you just lift your hands? Thank you so much. You can put them right back down. God, we love you today. We thank you for the opportunity to go to your word and to be challenged by the truth of your word. I thank you, God, that your word speaks to things like communication in the context of relationships. We're not left to our own to figure this thing out. But God, we are your sons and daughters. And so, God, today I thank you for the people in this room who made that decision to be your son or daughter, to acknowledge their need for you, to forgive their sins, and to become their Lord from this moment forward. God, we celebrate with heaven as they have made this incredible decision to follow after you. And God, now I pray for every person that lifted their hands to say, hey, I want to do better in relationships and I want to do better in communication. God, help me to listen better and help me to respond better and help me to live by the golden rule better and initiate great things to other people and not wait just to react to what they do. God, help me to tell the truth more and more in my life because truth builds trust. And God, do heart surgery on me to take away everything in my heart that doesn't reflect you because what's in my heart will eventually come out of my mouth. God, help us to win in relationships. Not so that we win and someone else loses, but so we all win because we're finding success, because our relationships are centered and grounded in you. You're being honored in everything that we do. We give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.